Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, March 9th, 2023. Rav Yehuda Amital used to tell this story, and I've shared it with you before. I know that there are different versions of this story, but this is the version Rav Amital used to tell. And it's much more than just a story he would often repeat. It was, he said, the foundation on which he built his magnificent yeshiva, Har Etzion, just south of Jerusalem. And it is also an expression of the essence of his character and his behavior throughout his life. So the story goes like this. Reb Shner Zalman of Ladi is known as the Alter Rebbe of Chabad, the founder of Chabad. He's the author of the work Tanya, the Alter Rebbe. His grandson, Reb Menachem Mendel, is known to us by the work that he wrote, Tzemach Tzedek. It once happened that the Alter Rebbe and his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, were studying Torah in the same house, but in different rooms. And this house, this apartment, was arranged with three rooms, one after the other. The room furthest to the back, that's where the Alter Rebbe was studying by himself, studying Torah. In the middle room was his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek. In the outer room, closest to the door, there was a baby who was sleeping, the son of the Tzemach Tzedek, the great-grandson of the Alter Rebbe. And the baby began to cry. The Tzemach Tzedek, the baby's father, who was in the room closest to the baby, did not notice the baby crying because he was so immersed in his Torah learning. He was concentrating with such concentration and focus that he did not hear his son crying. But his grandfather, the great-grandfather of the baby, the Alter Rebbe, in the further room, heard the baby cry. So the Alter Rebbe left his room, went through the room where the Tzemach Tzedek was, went to the outer room, picked up the baby, and soothed the baby until the baby fell asleep again. As the Alter Rebbe was walking back to his room, he passed through the room where his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, was studying Torah. And he said to his grandson, if someone is studying Torah and they fail to hear the crying of a baby, there is something very wrong with their Torah learning. In this week's Torah portion, Kisisa, we have the tragic, dramatic event of the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf. After God had revealed himself to the entire Jewish people at Mount Sinai and spoken 
the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments. God then invited Moshe to come up to the top of Mount Sinai, where God would then teach Moshe the rest of the Torah to then teach to the rest of the Jewish people. Moshe was supposed to come back after 40 days. Somehow there was confusion over what time Moshe was going to return. The Jewish people waiting below expected him at a certain time. But Bayar Ha'om, the people saw Kiboshesh Moshe Loretis bin Hahara. Moshe is not coming back down the mountain. Our rabbis explained there was a confusion over which day was the first day, how to count the 40 days. But the bottom line is, what at the moment that the people expected to see Moshe returning from Mount Sinai, he was not there. And they became hysterical. And the result was, Vayaseyu Egel Masecha. They made for themselves a golden calf, the Egel Hazahov. Now, when this happens, Moshe is still at the top of Harsinai, Mount Sinai. Moshe has no idea what's happening with the people down below, but God says to Moshe, Vayadaber Hashem Moshe, Lech Reid. Moshe, go back down. Kishiches Amcha. Because the people that you brought out of Egypt, they're making a terrible, terrible mistake. They're doing something horrible. Go back down. Well, okay. God says to Moshe, Saru maher min They have turned so quickly away from the path that I commanded them. Asulahem egel masecha. They made for themselves a graven image of a calf. Vayishtachavulo. And they're bowing down to this calf. Just a few days earlier, I, God, had said to the Jewish people, do not make any graven images. And now, only a few days later, they have violated the central command that I personally commanded them. Moshe, go back down and deal with this tragedy. So while Moshe is still at the top of the mountain with God, as soon as he hears this, before he even goes down to see for himself what's going on, Vayachal Moshe espenei Hashem Moshe beseeches God and prays to God, Shuv mecharon apecha. Turn away, God, from your burning anger. Vihinachem al harola mecha. And rescind the evil decree. Forgive the people. Before Moshe has even had a chance to see for himself what has happened, he immediately begs God for forgiveness for the Jewish people for their terrible sin. Then, as God had told him, Vayifen Vayered Moshe min hahar. Moshe went back down the mountain. On his way back down the mountain to go rejoin the Jewish people to deal with the crisis of them having created a golden calf, he meets Yehoshua, Joshua, who at this point is a young man, Moshe's student, but destined, of course, we know, to become Moshe's successor. Apparently, Yehoshua was not present 
where the golden calf was built with the rest of the Jewish people. Apparently, Yehoshua had accompanied Moshe as Moshe was going to the top of Mount Sinai, Yoshua waited at the base of the mountain, but away from the people themselves. So Yehoshua himself did not know firsthand what was happening with the people and the golden calf until Moshe came down and he sees Moshe and he says, Yehoshua, we got to get back there. Something terrible has happened. And as the two of them approached, the Torah says, Vayishma Yehoshua es kol ha'am bere'o. Yehoshua heard a noise from the camp, from the people, that sounded to Yehoshua like it was triumphant. A triumphant noise. Vayomer el Moshe. And Yehoshua says to Moshe, as they're walking towards the Jewish people surrounding the golden calf, Yoshua says to Moshe, Kol I hear the sound of the triumph of battle amongst the Jewish people. We need to get there and see what's happening. Vayomer, and Moshe responds to Yoshua. Now, before we hear what Moshe says, let's understand why it is so important that Moshe respond to what Yehoshua just said. Remember, there's this whole golden calf thing going on that Moshe's got to deal with. That's a pretty momentous event. But before we get to that, Moshe cannot ignore or leave unresponded to the words that Yehoshua just said. And our rabbis tell us, Amalo Moshe Yehoshua, Moshe says to Yoshua, this is the background to the words I'm going to read to you in just a moment, but the reason that he's going to respond to Yoshua at this moment is, Adam Shu Asid Lahanheg Shrara Al Shishim Ribo, the man who is destined to become my successor, the leader of the entire Jewish people, the Eni Yodei Lahavkim Ben Kol Lakol, and he misunderstands the sound that he hears. Moshe is upset with Yoshua because Yoshua interprets the sound in one way. Moshe understands that Yoshua is wrong, and Moshe sees this as a critical flaw in leadership that Yoshua is mis understanding this noise, this sound, and Moshe must at this moment interject and point out the error that Yehoshua is making in order to help train Yehoshua to eventually become the leader and successor to Moshe. So Moshe says to Yehoshua, Vayomer, Moshe says, Ein kol anos gvura. This sound that we're hearing is not the sound of power, and this sound is not the sound of weakness. The sound that we hear is the sound of anos. What does that mean? The sound of anos? Our commentators have a number of different opinions, but I want to share with you an amazing insight of Rabbi Shimon Schwab. 
Yehoshua heard this sound, this noise, this screaming and yelling that was going on. And Yehoshua understood, Yehoshua interpreted that this was the sound of rebellion. This is the sound of revolt against God. They have done battle with and revolted against God and they are triumphing in their minds, in their rebellion against God, in creating this golden calf. That is what Yehoshua understands this sound to mean, that the Jews are rebelling against God. Which, of course, on the surface, appears to be exactly correct. But Moshe not only disagrees, but he must reprimand Yehoshua at this very moment. Yehoshua, you have to understand accurately and precisely what that noise is. These are not the, the, the sounds, the screams of people who are rebelling. Call anos. This is the sound of anos, related to the word inui, in pain. This is the cry of a people who are in pain, Moshe tells Yehoshua. They are suffering. They are afraid because they don't know what happened to me. They fear that they have lost me, their leader, Moshe says to Yoshua. They're not rebelling against God. They're scared. And they don't know where to turn. This call anos, this cry of pain and fear and confusion, it is so important that Moshe has to interrupt this narrative to correct Yehoshua. Because this is critical for any person who aspires to leadership. And the truth is, it is a critical lesson for every single one of us in our lives because so often we hear people making noise. And we often think to ourselves, the noise that they're making, they're angry. They're jealous, they're mean, they're complaining. And it may be true. But very often, when a person makes that kind of noise, the real truth is they're in pain. And they're afraid. And this is the only way they know to express it. Now, that doesn't excuse bad behavior. But to respond effectively to someone making noise, we have to listen carefully to why they are making such a noise. Because someone in pain or who is afraid calls for a very different response than someone who is actually rebelling or angry. And it was absolutely essential that Moshe clarify for Yehoshua, listen more carefully to the sound, not the sound that your ears hear, but the sound that your heart interprets, what's behind it. They're not rebelling. They're afraid. And the response 
has got to be a response to their fear, not an angry response. Rav Amital's story about the baby and Moshe's lesson to always hear the cry of another and to try to determine if it is caused by fear or pain and then to work to soothe it, to alleviate it. That is what every single one of us must do when we hear a cry. The greatest debacle in all of Jewish history, the building and worshiping of the golden calf, the Egel Azov in our Torah portion, is actually the impetus for perhaps the most helpful and healing aspect of Jewish theology. After Moshe's intercession, God doesn't only forgive the Jewish people for this terrible sin, God teaches us the process of teshuva, of repentance, in order to have a path, a process, a way to be forgiven for future sins. Future sins against God and future sins against each other. Through asking sincerely for forgiveness, compensating for the damage or harm we have caused, expressing our regret over what we did, and sincerely committing to not repeating the mistake that we made. Now, that in itself is a tremendous message. Our greatest downfall creates the tool that helps us overcome it, not just then, but for all time. And the practical lesson of that for us is in the throes of every downfall, national or personal, we should look for which tool for a better life will this experience create for us because it's there. We just need to find it and put it to use. But there's a second lesson. The Talmud describes how God went so far as to teach us, to demonstrate for us how to go through this process for the sins against God with prayer and introspection by reading, by reciting the Yud Gimel Midos, the 13 attributes of God's mercy. Listen please to this astounding passage in the Talmud. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan teaches, If this were not written explicitly in the Torah, what he is about to say, it would be impossible to imagine, it would be unthinkable. Malamed, we are taught in our Torah portion, that God wrapped himself up, so to speak, in a talis like a chazan, like the one who's leading the prayer service. And showed Moshe the order of this prayer, the 13 attributes, Yud Gimel Midos. 
Omarlo, and God said to Moshe, Kalzman she Yisrael chotin, any time the Jewish people sin, Yasu lefanai kaseder hazeh, say before me, this order, this prayer, v'ani mochalechem, and I will forgive them. The prayer, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, v'chanun, the prayer of God's 13 attributes of mercy. Wow. So, Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, comes from our Torah portion, Kisisa. In a general way, because the acceptance of our repentance for the golden calf was demonstrated when God, when Moshe, I'm sorry, when Moshe returned to the people with the second set of luchos, the second set of tablets on which are engraved the Aseris Adiros, the Ten Commandments. And when Moshe returned that second time, that indicated, that demonstrated that God had forgiven the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. And that day, the day that Moshe returned, was the tenth day of Tishrei. That day is established every year as our Day of Atonement, the anniversary of God forgiving us for the sin of the golden calf, and we understand with our sincere prayers and introspection and repentance all the sins that we will commit going forward. More specifically, the prayer that is at the heart of the Slichos prayers that we say before Yom Kippur and that we say on Kol Nidre night at the beginning of Yom Kippur and especially the prayers that we say at Ne'ilah, the end of Yom Kippur, that we say with such emotion and energy and enthusiasm and pathos, those prayers are mostly the repetition over and over and over again of this prayer. Hashem, Hashem, Ke'el Rachum B'Chanun. We recite the Yud Gimomidos, the 13 attributes of God's mercy. In other words, a large chunk of our high holiday experience is based on this prayer. Because this prayer is our secret weapon. Of course, there are several ways to achieve atonement, repentance, prayer, compassion to others. But this is the secret weapon. And that's why we repeat this prayer over and over again, especially as Yom Kippur is coming to a close with Ni'ilah, the closing of the gates. Because God promised let them recite this order of prayer before me and I will forgive them. And the Talmud goes on to say that God made a promise with the Jewish people. A divine promise that whenever this prayer is said, it will have an effect. But the Sefer Imre Emes tells us there is a condition to this promise. A condition we should focus on at this and every moment. Let's recall the words of the Talmud. 
Malame, this teaches us that God wrapped himself in a talis like a shliach tzibor, like a chazan. What does that image mean to suggest to us? It tells us that merely saying the words Hashem, Hashem, Keol, Rachum, Lachanun, simply listing 13 attributes of God's mercy, it's not enough. A person must say those words like he or she is the chazan, like he or she is reciting the prayer on behalf of the entire community. You know, so often when we do stand before God in prayer, we say to God, I need this, I ask for that, I hope for this. Usually, if we're honest, we have our own personal needs in mind. But that's not what God's looking for. God is looking for us to say this prayer as if we are speaking on behalf of the entire community, as if we are expressing not only my needs, but our needs. I'm not only thinking of what is going on in my life, but what is going on in your life. That's the reason that so many of our prayers are in the plural, because we're not asking God, heal me, Michael Whitman. I'm asking God to heal all of us who are ill. And the same is true with all of our prayers. And it's very difficult, especially when we're going through something that's a real challenge, a crisis, God forbid. It's natural for us to be focused on our own needs. And it's very easy to overlook the fact that there are others at this moment who are suffering. It's very difficult to have that kind of perspective when I myself am going through a tragedy. It's normal for me to dwell on the pain that I am experiencing. But that's what God wants us to do. That's what it means where God shows us we can't just say the words. We have to say the words like a chazan, like the shliach tzibor. We have to say the words and be thinking that we're asking for forgiveness and for health and for knowledge and for redemption, not just for me, but for all of us. That's when there's a promise. That's when God promises us, guarantees us that the prayer will have an effect. Now, the truth is, this characteristic is not limited to prayer. There are many ways that we can express this, and it is very, very difficult. We're in the midst of our own cloud of difficulty and pain and suffering to be able to focus on a larger view and to be able to think of someone else's needs at the same time. It's very difficult, but we are called to do this in every area of life. I want to share with you a story, an incredible story. I heard this story from Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky, whose father was Rabbi Binyamin Kamenetsky. It happened in the town where Rabbi Binyamin Kamenetsky lived. There was a family, and the father tragically passed away when his son was still very young, just a little boy. 
Then when it came time for the boy's bar mitzvah, another tragedy occurred. His mother became very, very sick. And she was in the hospital. And it was clear she was not going to be able to leave the hospital to attend her son's bar mitzvah. Just a few days before this bar mitzvah was going to take place, what an emotional bar mitzvah this is going to be. This little boy is becoming bar mitzvah. His father passed away. His mother can't be there because she's ill. A few days before this, Rabbi Yaman Kamenetsky went to visit the mother in the hospital. And this woman, this, the mother of this boy, she said to Rabbi Kamenetsky, she said, I want to ask you for a favor. Please do not attend my son's bar mitzvah. It's pretty surprising. First of all, Rav Kamenetsky was close with the family. He was planning on going anyway. And second of all, given the circumstances, for the mother to say, don't go to the, my son's bar mitzvah? So he said to her, of course, whatever you ask, I'll do, but please, please explain why you're asking me to do such a strange thing. And she said to him, on the same day that my son is having his bar mitzvah, there's another boy in his class in school that's having his bar mitzvah at a different synagogue. And she said, I know that every rabbi in town is going to come to my son's bar mitzvah because he is an orphan whose father passed away and because his mother is sick and can't be there. So everyone is going to be there to try to give support and to lighten the experience for my son. I know that everyone's going to be there. But that means no one's going to go to the other boy's bar mitzvah. So please, Rabbi Kamenetsky, do me a favor. Don't go to my son's bar mitzvah. Go to the other boy's bar mitzvah. Wow. Here is a woman who is enveloped in a terrible cloud of personal tragedy. And yet she was able to think to herself, what's going to be with this other boy? That's the type of selflessness that when it is used to invoke the Yudgimomidos, the 13 attributes of God's mercy, that's praying like a shliatzibah, like a chazan, who's not merely representing themselves before God, but representing everyone, insensitive to the needs of everyone, not just my own personal tragedy. And we need to think about that every single time we pray, especially every single time we pray in the plural. Because what we are praying for is what we need, what we want, not just me, but like a shliat zibor, like a chazan, what all of us need, what all of us want. Training ourselves to think like this is itself one of the goals of prayer. We pray in the plural so that we should train ourselves, that we should be thinking about what we need, not just what I need. 
And this is also the lesson we learn in how to serve God that comes directly from our worst mistake, the building of the golden calf. Let me share with you one last piece for tonight. This Shabbos, we read the third of four special Torah readings in addition to the weekly Torah portion of Kisisa. We also read Parshas Para, the portion of the Torah that discusses the Para Aduma, the red heifer. The Torah tells us during the time when the Beis Amigdash is standing, the Holy Temple is standing in Jerusalem, there was a structure, a system of ritual purity, tahara, and ritual impurity, tumah. And if a person came into contact, for example, with a dead body, they were tame, ritually impure. In order to become tahar, ritually pure, they had to undergo a process that lasted seven days, which included having a kohen sprinkle the person with ashes mixed with water, Ashes that came from a para, a duma, a red heifer, meaning a calf with all reddish fur, skin, that was offered as a unique type of offering, and then the ashes were mixed with water, and the kohen would sprinkle the person on the third day and on the seventh day, and after seven days, the person would become tahar, ritually pure. It's a very strange ritual. It's something that we're not familiar with. We don't practice this today. But during the time when the temple was standing in Jerusalem, it was necessary to undergo this procedure in order to partake of the carbon Pesach, the Paschal offering. Remember, when the Beis Hamidrash was standing in Jerusalem, the centerpiece and the highlight of the Passover Seder was for everyone to eat part of the carbon Pesach, the Paschal offering, the Passover offering. And in order to do that, you had to be tahar, ritually pure. So if during the course of the year you had, let's say, attended a funeral or some other way come into contact with a dead body, you had to prepare in advance because it takes at least seven days. And remember, there are a lot of people and they're all doing the same thing. There are only so many kahanim. So you have to prepare this in advance to get ready. So reading Parshas Para this coming Shabbos is a way of making an announcement. Pesach is coming. And you better get ready because it's coming. So since during the time when the temple was standing, this is one of the preparations, spiritual preparations, that a person would have to do that takes a certain amount of time, it will be announced a few weeks in advance. We read this portion, although it doesn't have any practical application to us today in its original sense, we read it this Shabbos to remember that it would be announced in former times and to remind ourselves we have to get ready for Pesach. So let me remind you, it's time to start getting ready for Pesach. And not just with the food and the clothes, but with the spiritual preparations and the introspection and the learning as we're doing tonight and we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. However, the Torah portion that we read, Parshas Para, begins with three very curious words. It begins with Zos Chukas HaTorah. This is the law of the Torah. Now, it's very hard to understand. 
it's one of the 613 commandments in the Torah. It's certainly important if you are in this situation where you're ritually impure and you need to become pure, so you need to know about this, but Zos Chukas Torah seems to imply this is the law of the entire Torah. Everything boils down to this. Everything is based on this. How is that possible? It's, 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 first of all, it's not even ap- applicable to us today. It's quite obscure. It's very mysterious. How is this the basis of the entire Torah? I want to share with you an insight that I heard from Rabbi Yisachar Friend. <clears throat> this ritual of the Paraduma, the red heifer, had within it a tremendous and mysterious paradox. Because while the entire purpose of this ritual, this process, is to make a person ritually pure, the Kohen, who would actually do this for another person, the Kohen himself became impure, ritually impure, tame. How is it possible that a person who is helping another achieve a status of ritual purity should themselves become impure through doing it? It's a paradox. Our sages tell us that Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, could not figure this out. It was about this paradox, this conundrum, that Shlomo wrote in his work Kohelis, Ecclesiastes, I tried to figure it out, but I just couldn't figure it out. Even I, the wisest of all men, I couldn't figure it out. It just doesn't make sense. It's a paradox. How can it be that the process that leads to ritual purity should cause the person who does it to become ritually impure? I just don't understand it. And here's the insight that applies not only to this subject. It applies to the entire Torah. It applies to all of life. The lesson that God is teaching every one of us about all of life, there are things in life that are inexplicable. There are paradoxes that we will not understand. So many areas, perhaps most dramatically, in the way people experience life. We see people who are righteous. It would seem to us by all logic that they should be blessed by God, that they should be okay. And yet so often we see people who are deserving of righteous and they're suffering terribly, God forbid. And at the same time, we see people who are wicked, who are terrible, monstrous people, and they're having such a great time. They're doing so well. How could it be? It doesn't make sense. For some reason, that's the way God created this world. And we have to deal with this problem, that there are many things we do not understand. And the place where God teaches us this lesson explicitly is this mitzvah, paraduma. And God says to us, here's one mitzvah, and I guarantee you, you will not figure it out. It will not make sense to you. It will be a paradox that you will not be able to understand no matter how smart you are. And God says to us, it's not just this one mitzvah. 
that you won't be able to understand? Zos chukas ha-Torah. This is the whole Torah. This is all of life. It is from here we learn to have a realistic expectation. This is where God teaches us about life. It is a harsh lesson, but it's crucial. We're just not going to understand it all. And we need this lesson every single day because every day, every moment, we encounter paradoxes and contradictions and what appear to us to be injustices that just don't make sense. So many things happen. We see so many things. And we have to say, I just don't know. I just don't understand. I cannot explain it. And this is the life lesson that has its source in this obscure, mysterious mitzvah, the Paraduma, that we will read about this Shabbos. But, while this lesson is a fundamental lesson about life in general, and there's a specific reason why we're reviewing it right now to remember to get ready for Pesach, there is another reason we must review this lesson now, just a few weeks before Pesach. Because Passover is the holiday that glorifies questions. We want our children on Passover to ask questions. We want our children to say Manishtana, to ask four questions, and not just four. We want our children to ask lots of questions. In fact, the Talmud tells us that we are not allowed, we are not able to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt on Pesach night at the Seder until we are asked a question. And then we can answer the question, we can respond to the question by telling the narrative of the Exodus from Egypt. How do we ensure that we will be asked questions on Pesach? <clears throat> so I claim to have some expertise in this area because for 40 years, and thank God going strong, I invite people to ask me questions. Just by the way, not this Shabbos, but a week from Shabbos, next Shabbos morning, which is March 18th, you're invited to join us at Adath, Shabbos morning, where instead of speaking, I will be participating in another edition of Stump the Rabbi, where I'm going to ask you to ask any question. It could be about Pesach. It could be about anything else. Any question, nothing is off the table. Ask, and we'll discuss it. Join us. You're invited. But throughout my entire career, for 40 years, I've been inviting people to ask me questions. And here's the thing. Every time I offer, there are more questions that are asked. Baruch Hashem, thank God. And so, I claim a certain expertise in eliciting questions from people. And I will share with you the three rules that I have formulated 
to elicit questions. Now, besides, obviously, having some knowledge or wisdom to answer at least some of the questions. <laughs> Let's leave that to the side. But here are my three rules to evoke, to elicit someone to ask you a question. Number one, <clears throat> when someone asks you a question, respect the question and the questioner. First of all, for some people, it's difficult to ask a question, especially if it's in public or even if it's in private, especially if it's something personal or delicate or just in general. People are reticent to ask. People are reticent to show that they don't know something. You have to respect the person and respect the question. <laughs> this is my motto. There are no stupid questions. There are only stupid answers. And it's true. And if you convey that, you will help people to want to ask you questions. That's number one. Number two, whenever it's appropriate, use humor. First of all, humor keeps people interested. And second of all, very often, when you have to say something that's difficult to say and maybe difficult to hear, one technique to being able to say something that would otherwise be difficult to hear, use humor. Very often with humor, you can say something that can be accepted and heard in a way that might not be possible if you say it straight. That's number two, use humor. And number three, be willing to say, I don't know. Because if you can't say, I don't know, and there are many people who simply can't say, I don't know. There are many people who simply can't say to their children, I don't know, because they think they're mistaken, but they think it makes them look weak. They won't be respected. It's not true, but there are people who feel like that. There are rabbis who feel they can't say, I don't know, because it makes it look like they're not deserving of authority and respect. It's not true, but there are people that feel like this. But here's the truth. If you can't say, I don't know, people will come to think that you, in fact, do not know, and the answer you're given is just something you've made up to have something to say because they have learned from you that you will never admit to not knowing. By saying, I don't know, when you don't know, you give greater credibility to your answer when you do know the answer. Because realizing we don't know is the key to navigating life. Zos chukas Torah. And expressing we don't know gains for us more respect, not less. You want your children to ask you questions on Pesach? Follow my rules and see if it works. Most importantly, 
be willing to say when it's true, I don't know. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.